2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters, and we're going to talk about the movie Hot Fuzz. It's episode 17 of the show, lastnighters.com slash 17, show notes and more. Uh, give us a subscribe and a like and all those things on our Facebook page and YouTube, uh, interchangeably, respectively, whatever. Uh, let's say hello to Robert before we get into the Google description for Hot Fuzz. Hey Robert, how you doing? Uh, pretty good. How you doing? All right. And with that, I bring you Hot Fuzz 2007. Drama, parody film, two hours and one minutes, 7.9 on the IMDb, 91%, Rotten Tomatoes, 81%, Metacritic, and 93% of the Google users give it a thumbs upsies. Here is the description. As a former London constable, Nicholas Angel, played by Simon Pegg, finds it difficult to adapt to his new assignment in the sleepy British village of Sandford. Not only does he miss the excitement of the big city, but he also has a well-meaning oaf for a partner, played by Nick Frost. However, when a series of grisly accidents rocks Sanford, Nick smells something rotten in the idyllic village. Came out on March 14, 2007, though I think that's actually incorrect. I read something else that said it came out on April 20, 2007 in the United States and was released in February in the UK. Uh, director Edgar Wright, and this is the second film in the film series Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, first being Shaun of the Dead and uh, the third being, um, what's it, uh, This is the End or The End of the World, something like that. At World's End. At World's End, yes. Uh, screenplay by Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, box office of $80.7 million, which usually I think $100 million is like the baseline for something that's a good movie, or at least that used to be the number. Um, but this is still considered a, a pretty big success, um, even though it's you know kind of a smaller, smaller thing, this take on the uh, buddy cop movie that didn't really exist in UK cinema prior to this, and that was one of the reasons they went into it. Um, any uh, comment on any of that, Robert? I didn't know the film's financial successes. I mean, it obviously did well enough for Edgar Wright to go on to have a fantastic career. The guy's been behind, you know, he most recently did Baby Driver, but before that he did um, Scott Pilgrim and um, probably some other good stuff. I can't think of anything. Oh, he he kind of sort of did Ant-Man, at least he started to do Ant-Man, and then Marvel booted him off it when it wasn't like what they wanted for the movie. But um, he's just like a super creative, funny guy, and I really dig his style. Um, I don't know if he's the one that popularized the kind of style. Oh, yeah, that but, super, uh, super cut, like uh, time-lapse type um, thing, right? Yeah, when he wants to do a show, you know, a lot in a very short amount of time, he'll just do super cuts of little vignettes. I don't know if that's not the right word, but you know what it's I mean. It's like super You know kinetic. when you see it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that style got aped and stolen and used by other directors. I don't know if he was actually the originator of it, but I guess he's the most popular version of it. It's kind of died off now, but for a while thank, there. In thank the God. <laughs> you didn't like it at all in this movie? You or know, it's one of those things I, I think it gets overused. And once you once the novelty wears off, it, it is grating. 
it can definitely be overused. I, it didn't bother me in this movie, but I know what you mean. It can definitely be overused. Yarp. Yarp. So uh, Baby Driver, that's another film that I was interested in, in po- possibly doing on the show. Uh, so if you think that that is worth doing, perhaps that can be one of our future episodes. I'm down to do any Edgar Wright, anytime. So yeah, absolutely. All right, that might be our next episode, unless you want to do some uh, South of the Border flavor. Uh, I was thinking perhaps Nacho Libre or Coco. Since it's, oh, yeah, Coco's coming to Netflix, right? So we could probably do that. Uh, end of May, though, so you're going to miss miss the timing on that if we want to do the Cinco de Mayo action. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'd rather, do, uh, I'd rather do Coco than Nacho, honestly. I mean, I haven't seen Nacho in a million years, but when I did see it, didn't seem like a whole lot of a movie, and I've heard good things about Coco, but uh, I don't know. I'm down for whatever, yo. Then Nacho it is. I think that you'll find what you seek in Nacho by watching it again. It's, it's a beautiful film. We'll see about that. We'll see about that. All right, so back to Hot Fuzz. Back to Hot yeah. Fuzz uh, here Hot on The Last Nighters. Um, I've got some notes. I think you've got some notes. Um, one of their key things here is, is the greater good, and they mention that so often. And so I want that to be a cornerstone of our conversation. Ooh. But let's set the scene here. So we start out with Supercop, who makes everyone else look bad, and they resent him for it. Uh, he excels. He's the only one um, making like significant arrests or impact in, in crime prevention. He gets stabbed in the hand by Santa Claus, who's um, uncredited but played by Peter Jackson, the director, which is pretty funny. Fun. Um, but when he gets moved on to this sleepy little village, and he doesn't even want to go, but um, he says, uh, uh, the people on the force aren't going to like this. And as he leaves the lieutenant's office or whatever his title is, Martin Freeman's office, there's this big uh, party for him, cake and banners, like, all right, see you later. <laughs> so they're, they're super happy to see him go. And it reminded me of the nature of bureaucracy and unions. Like, no one, no one can work harder than anyone else because it will make the remainder look bad. It's true. You see that a lot in um, communist and socialist type situations where everybody gets paid regardless of how hard you work. Um, it, uh, usually it just drags everybody down to the lowest common denominator because why work harder if you're already getting paid the same? But yeah, if there is any outlier, it does make everyone else look bad. So you don't necessarily want them around. Right, because I, I, I the was, commissars was, would see that and be like, oh, everyone's slacking, you know, because they'd have a, a, something to measure them by, right? Because without somebody outlying like that as much, um, it would seem normal, right? Because they don't have economics to calculate. They don't have yeah, profit no and loss. Competition and to, you're right. There's no competition to, like, measure them by, really. All right, but you were going so, somewhere. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was going somewhere. Where was I going? Fashion. Oh, I wanted to ask you if you, I mean... Hag. Overall, <laughs> overall, would you say that this movie was glorifying police or denigrating them? Because I felt it sort of was a mixed bag. Yeah, I was torn on that. Yeah. There are elements of both, and I'm a bit torn on it. I think that the Nicholas Angel character, Supercop, is sort of glorifying the conceptualization of, of cops in the hero light. But then every other right. cop is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, every single other cop is useless garbage. <laughs> so yeah it is a bit tough and and i've been warned by friends who listen to the show who said hey you crap oliver super troopers don't do the same thing to hot fuss <laughs> <laughs> or else or else or else what or else what indeed uh, but I, I am torn on it i really am and um, i'm still not sure where i stand on it when i first saw this movie when it came out um it still 
even at the time, I liked it, but mostly for the witty banter and the camaraderie between Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. Like, they play well with each other. But the movie feels a little bit disjointed, not just in the kinetic sense of those little vignette scenes we were talking about before. But, like, you've got, like, the first half of the movie um, is sort of a a buildup of establishing that he's a super good cop and then everyone else is lazy and resents him. And then you've got him integrating into the village a little bit. And then it ends up being this, like, super Rambo <laughs> violence gore uh, shootout. And it just felt disjointed just in the three acts, if you follow what I'm saying. I do follow what you're saying. I would argue that that's due to the storytelling elements, the the fact that they wanted all the characters to have an arc. So they establish, you know, one of the cops is having no idea what to do. So he leans on Simon Pegg's character to say everything. And then you got these detectives who are just super snarky and hate everything and are the worst at their job. You know, and, and eventually everybody comes around and kind of like does their job at the end. So, yeah, I mean, what is the movie actually trying to say? Are they trying to say that Simon Pegg is lifting all boats by being around and like he can make terrible people into better people just by inspiring them or something like that? The glue I don't guy, know. The LeBron yeah, James. I <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the movie was actually trying to make that claim or not. I just think it was more along the lines of this is, you know, this is the story. These are the, the, the things that need to happen in the story, and this is the natural consequences of those things. Um, I will say that this movie is one of my favorite in terms of circular storytelling. Everything, almost everything that happens in the movie, especially the, that happens like any kind of a key moment or point, is set up early in the movie. So there's all kinds of setups and then payoffs big time in the third act. So I really enjoy that aspect. I don't know if you followed or you noticed that or because this is something that happens maybe a little bit more subtly in other movies, but it was fairly, even though they drop little bits subtly in the beginning, when there's the payoff, you go, oh, yeah. And I think it becomes very apparent um, what they were doing. Because, yeah, what am I? I mean, they, they, it's, no, it's no accident that they watched both Bad Boys 2 and Point Break, you know, at some point in the movie. And then those exact key moments happen later on. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and that's one of the things I was going to go to. And one of the immediate payoffs was the, the piss taker. <laughs> and that's really the guy's name. It's pretty funny. Yeah, um, very funny. But, uh, yes, those, those homages, those nods to other film. I think that uh, I, I was reading about this, and they said that they watched about 200 other movies for inspiration and they did little callbacks to each of them or, or many of them like at the, the very beginning when he's first in town and, and checking into the hotel <laughs> the uh, the lady at the end is like oh you you've been here you've always been here or something like that like a nod to the shining absolutely <laughs> she, she says oh I thought I thought you were my husband he's always been here and then uh, she's doing the crossword puzzle calls him a fascist and then fascist is the answer and then hag Anyway, it's just, it's funny stuff. So Yeah, and then the payoff at the very end when they fight again, and then they call each other the same names. I thought that was good stuff. Yes, yes. And I, I, do, I do agree that I like when they do those callbacks, and it does satisfy you in a certain way, but I still think that overall there was a lot of just disjointedness in the storytelling. Like, okay, if these, I don't mean to get to this point yet, but one of my really? big issues right. is that it makes no sense that... A, all these murders just happen to start happening um, now versus, you know, the entire history of the town other than when the, the wife committed suicide and they started winning well, all these Grammys. Well, they did, they did explain it in the movie. But, yeah, you could argue that it's not a very good explanation. 
and they explained it that the, you know the um, the evaluation for the town of the year was happening, so we had to get everything cleaned up. Right, but but this had been happening for years and years. Sure, right, but you know it's also a movie it needs to take place within you know a certain amount of time. <laughs> That's true, yeah. And then everyone like is armed at the end, but there's no hint of that prior, other than the one guy who has the hedge property rights issue, and he's got this stockpile of weapons, unlicensed. No, and the firearms. guy with the oversized coat. Oh yeah, remember that yeah. conversation? Yeah, he's they suspicious, talk about that? and they see him again. Yeah, right. <laughs> And they're right, yeah. yeah. And that's another thing with um, Nicholas Angel, Simon Pegg. He's so specialized in his job and so focused, he totally lacks like social skills and relationships, even though he sort of has a girlfriend, but she breaks up with him and starts dating another guy. And that's actually uh, another um, uncredited cameo. That's Kate Blanchett. Yeah, it seemed like it was somebody, but I couldn't exactly put my finger on her because she's wearing a mask. But there's a good joke that goes along with that. I mean, he didn't even recognize her either. That was fun. Yes, yes. Um, let's let's get into a couple of notes that I have, and then uh, see see if they bounce off of you. All right. Sure. All right. So I liked or want to talk about when he goes to the bar and orders the cranberry juice, and he starts to notice that the whole bar, all the patrons are are minors, underage kids, and so he goes to the bartender and is like, "Hey, you know, these guys all look too young," and he's like, "Oh, you know, if they're off by a few months, no big deal." He ends up kicking everyone out, ruining the business. They have zero customers, and the guy's in there just drinking cranberry juice. So because of he's a, he's a stickler to law and order, and the, the rules state this, he ruins this, uh, ruins this business. So you're saying... For the greater good. Mean, keeps him out of I don't trouble. mean to put words in your mouth, Daniel, but it's almost as if you're saying that government laws harm entrepreneurship. It does sound a lot like that, doesn't it? <laughs> it's almost like you're... Complaining about maybe some sort of government bureaucracy and laws affecting the private businesses. I, I, you sound like some sort of radical. Oh, I am. I am. And and here's the thing: like people will take issue with this, but they'll be wrong. Uh, that the market does self-regulate. Like if if a business or a service is being offered that people don't like and don't want, they'll stop buying it. And a competitor will offer something else, an alternative, a better price, better quality different variation, whatever. And uh, generally speaking, there's opportunity for, for so many uh, different businesses that you'd have variety, right? Different strokes for different folks. I say, I say this all the time. But certain things would be just deemed unprofitable, like people just wouldn't like it. But you've got this business that's selling alcohol, and it's a bit of an arbitrary age, right? Like people mature at different times, and, and at, what time, at what age are you an autonomous human being uh, capable of making your own decisions. You know, I'd argue well, that and how much and how much violence are you comfortable with using to prevent people from drinking alcohol? Right. And and I thought the bartender actually had a decent argument in that it keeps them out of trouble because at least they're in here rather than running around this small town with nothing to do. Yeah. And, and in that respect, I think he is saying it's for the greater good and he's probably kind of right. You know, he's, well, he's probably keeping those kids alive if, if you follow the, the plot of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't understand when he falls through the catacombs and he sees like all of these people who have been murdered. It's like they went on a, this total tear. And if it had been going on for a long time, don't you think that it would show up somehow? Like, hey, in this town, like accidents happen way more than anywhere else. There's all these mysteries. Well, that is a line in the movie. Simon Pegg's character does say that. He's like, haven't you noticed that there's the murder rate's super, super low and the accident rate is super, super high? 
Right, yeah. And um, I made this point to uh, someone on Facebook earlier today because he was talking about um, how in Venezuela doctors can't mark down that somebody died of starvation because it's not permitted to say that. So they have to come up with other things. So I was like, all right, the, the quickest way to solve a problem is to call it something else. The quickest way to cure a disease is call it something else. And it's uh, it's another thing about um, in Cuba, you know, everyone points to the their amazing and stellar record in um, infant mortality improvement. Like it's a uh-huh. first world level. Well, they just stopped counting them and they, they started marking them down as something else. So, I mean, you can juice the stats however you want. How dare you? Stats don't lie, Daniel. Definitely not government stats. All so, right. Here's, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was the um, the Nick Frost character getting super drunk and then trying to drive the car, and he crashes and gets thrown into the drunk tank. And then the next morning, it turns out that he's not in the cell and he's a cop. And uh, it reminds me of people on the East Coast have told me about these little um, stickers or cards that cops will hand out to, to friends and family, relatives and whatnot. They get them out of minor offenses. If they get stopped by the police for doing something wrong, um, if it's not a major uh, crime, then they can just show them the sticker or show them the card or give them the sticker. I, I don't know if they, like, lose it. If they use it, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, punch card. Yeah, like a little uh, Taco Del Mar card. <laughs> um, but that reminded me of, of what happened in this movie because he's our, he's also a cop, and his dad is the chief inspector or whatever, and so he gets away with... Um, this victimless crime. Well, there was actually a victim in this instance because he crashed the vehicle into a uh, into a building, right? So there was property damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he gets off on it, phrasing. And uh, it, it is relevant in the respect that um, recently there's been talk of the Golden State Killer and the revelation that he was actually a cop at the time of the murders. And it's like straight out of the plot of Dexter, right? Not that Dexter was a cop, but he worked for the cops, and he would go around killing people. Right, except Dexter supposedly only killed serial killers. This guy was just killing whoever. I don't know. Yeah, but I guess my overall point is that there's this graft and this uh, nepotism that goes on, and there's this corruption, and that there's different rules for different people, so you you know might as well not really have laws, and or not, not laws in, in this um, arbitrary sense, but more in a... You know, market-based competing justice system versus this monopoly control system that we have now. Um, but it's also perfect cover for people to get away with shit, as yeah. is revealed in this film, because the, the the head cop, the chief inspector guy, is actually the ringleader of this town's cult group. Like they they dress like druids or whatever, or like death, like uh, those black hoods, and go around murdering people. Yeah. And how the cops working for him didn't figure this out until. Simon Pegg like points it out to them is is kind of bizarre and weird, but I guess it just goes to show you know how terrible they are at their job. Right. Yeah. I think the movie had to set them up as just being atrocious in order for it to make any kind of sense. Because otherwise, you know, they would be detecting things. I mean, when clear murders happen, or you know, like the decapitation and then the the church thing and the and the the the, the uh, head lieutenant guy or the whatever constable. Just immediately declares it an accident. Just every every single time, they're just like, "Oh, look at this accident where she stabbed herself in the throat with these shears." Happens all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. You know, people just slip and fall on things. You know, we don't need to actually investigate anything. You don't have to check any forensics. You know, if he shoots himself in the back of the head twice, you know, it just it just happens. It's an accident. But back to your point about you know criminals seeking out positions of authority happens all the time. 
uh, happens all the time in the Catholic Church or in any kind of like church. I mean, the, the clergy is just a, a magnet for pedophiles because they know, you know, they have a, a steady supply, a ready supply of children who look up to you as this authority figure. And they've got this culture in the Catholic Church of protecting you. So, of course, it's going to attract people that want to do that. And then it also, you know, any kind of those positions where there's, I guess it's like it's been said where, you know, why do spiders make their webs near lights? Because that's where the insects and the prey comes. So anytime you've got some kind of authority person, which, you know, we're completely against, you're going to attract, not necessarily to say that all those people are attracted to that for that reason, but you will attract those people that want to abuse that, abuse that position. Yeah, so you've got cops and uh, people who work in prisons, prison guards. You've got clergy, perhaps. You've got Boy Scout troop leaders. Now, we're not trying to paint everyone in this light, but that those positions do offer those advantages, and for those seeking them, seeking those advantages, it's it's a path, it's a you know least resistance path to, to achieve that. Right. Not to say that everyone's bad, just that this is a position that allows many opportunities for those people to indulge in whatever it is they want to indulge in without consequences or with very little risk as opposed to, you know, some job where you're never going to be exposed. I mean, I doubt many pedophiles are wanting to be, you know, lumberjacks or whatever. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Fun topic. Yeah, moving on. Moving on. Let's talk about the firearms. So it's it's funny because from what I understand, firearm ownership is very limited in the UK, at least now, except for like hunting foxes or something like that. And it's so bad that they're now talking about banning knives and acid or something because there's acid attacks and knife attacks and things like that. And the level of crime is actually increased, uh, whereas the number of firearms in legal you know, hands or, or legitimate people's hands, how do I want to say this, um, non-criminal hands has been reduced. So it's just the criminals who have these weapons and are doing these attacks, and people don't have the ability to defend themselves as um, as well as they would if they had the proper equipment and tools. And a lot of this is related to the gun control. In fact, I think there was another story recently where there was an elderly man who had people break into his house, and he had a firearm and he defended himself with it, and he ended up going to prison for it. Yeah, how dare you defend yourself? It's, uh, it's horrific. Uh, those stories happen all the time. And... Um well, not all the time, but when they do happen, they're, they're far more frequent. And it's usually the case that the, the homeowner is found guilty of who knows what. I, 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 I'd love to sit on one of these juries and to see the thought process go through the minds of the prosecutors and the, and the jury members because it's beyond my understanding. Now, going back to this knife thing you said, uh, it's more than just being proposed. As I understand it, they're actually having bobbies, cops, patrol the streets of London and going into shops and then just, just stealing knives out of shops. Like just, just like a pack of knives. They'll just like steal it. Then they'll like take a picture of themselves with these, these knives and be like, another fine day on the job, getting these dangerous weapons off the street, patting themselves on the back as they confiscate, you know, some, some table cutlery. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite disgusting. And you know they're not compensating the, the store owners for this property that they're stealing. Yeah, and I've seen yeah, it's, little, it's already happening. Yeah, and I've seen the bins where you can like put them in to turn them in or whatever. And yeah, it's, they say like brave people don't carry knives or something like that. <laughs> I forget what it is. 
Only cowards carry. I mean, that's what it is. Only cowards carry knives. Screw you, buddy. Yeah, only violent criminals or people who, you know, they're the only ones who are going to do it. It's like, it's like people don't understand when there's um, thing control, like gun control, knife control, whatever, that the only people who are going to follow that are the quote-unquote law-abiding citizens. The criminals who are already going to do a criminal act, they're already going to violently attack somebody. They don't care that it says no knife, no gun. Like they're already going to harm someone. That's already against the law. It's already like right. immoral to, to do that, to cause harm to somebody like that, to violently aggress against somebody. And, and yet, you know, we talk about the uh, find me guilty where there's all this projection. That's what the government does constantly. Like everything is, is, is essentially a threat when you boil it down through the, make it through all the layers, right? Like it always comes down to escalation, 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 violence. Right. And as usual, the government gets the wrong end of the stick. They, they don't recognize what the actual immorality is. They try and make the object to be immoral when it's the act of aggression that is in fact immoral. It doesn't matter what tool you use. I could use a toothpick. The fact that I'm stabbing you with it is what's immoral about it. But government, because their entire existence predicates on violent aggression, all they can do is, you know, ban, violently ban things because you can't ban, you know, the human mind or the violence that exists within human minds or the ingenuity that exists to create a weapon out of anything or to use your fists or your feet or to ban, you know, aggressive thoughts, I guess. You know what I mean? Well, they're trying that. I mean, they, they got Probably the Dankula guy, Dankula, on the YouTube videos, and then I guess offensive tweets can get you in trouble now. Um, there's this case where they just starved a two-year-old child to death in the hospital, and the police were saying, hey, if you tweet anything offensive, we're going to come after you about this. Yeah, because the state owes you, owns you. They can declare ownership over children and over adults, of course, also through taxation and other things, controlling movement and claims on your labor, all sorts of things. But yeah, they, they can just declare that they own this child, even though the, the parents say, hey, we're going to take this child and take it somewhere else to get treatment. They're like, no, we're just going to kill it because we can't. Because people claim that when you have, you know, socialized medicine, there won't be, you know, death panels, so-called death panels, where people decide whether you're going to live or you're going to die. But there absolutely is, because you're talking about having limited resources. When you have a limited amount of resources, you have to decide how best to spend them. And when there is somebody under your care, remember, you're this central planning oligopoly, you are the decider of whether somebody's going to get care or not. Like they've already decided if people are smoking or you know, have unhealthy habits that they're not going to get surgery in some parts of Britain. Well, here's another instance of it where they're going to decide, no, this person's a lost cause. We're not going to treat them. And we're going to prevent you from taking them out of our, quote, care and seeking care elsewhere because we own you. This is the natural result of socialized medicine. And I wish people who think it's great, who think it's rainbows and unicorns. There's actually a guy, I think, in the United I was at a, um, an event here in town, and there was a guy looking for signatures for socialized, a socialized health care bill. A quote, free health care. And you can imagine how that word free really, really rankled me. <laughs> but, yeah, listening to the people around him and the people I was with, you know, really speak positively about it really just made me sad. Yeah, you're right. It, it is a limited and scarce resource and it's other people's labor that's that's being directed and uh, you know in a socialized system they're not compensated 
based on their skill set. You know, it's it's almost like uh, how teachers are compensated here. It's I, I believe it's more tenure based. Like the longer you're there, the harder it is to get fired, and <laughs> the more you get paid. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of unfortunate. My wife and I've been watching this show. Speaking of the UK, uh, about landlords and tenants, and they have two different sides in each story or two different perspectives. One is a landlord is getting screwed by a tenant and the other is a tenant is getting screwed by a landlord. And there was a, uh, this nurse who works for the NHS and she lived in this shithole apartment with her kid. Now, why she moved in this place five years ago uh, when it looked like it did, um, I don't understand because it was a dump then, but she's a nurse and uh, I imagine she'd be paid, you know, fairly well uh, as far as like working for a, a government run institution, right? Um, she stopped paying the rent 18 months prior and then got evicted and needed to go to an emergency shelter. But where was the 18 months of rent that she didn't pay? Like, wouldn't you think that that'd be a significant savings to you <laughs> and that you'd still have it and that you'd plan ahead and, you know, be able to at least afford a hotel room for uh, a couple of days to sort things out? Anyway, totally tangential there. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. I, it sounds like Another person with a victimhood complex, I don't know, I, having no reference point, but it sounds like people who want to blame other people for their situation without taking responsibility. Yes. Anyway, yes. Getting, getting, getting back to this movie, Daniel. All right, um, yes, back to the movie, The Greater Good. Yes. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, and we can, we can focus in on The Greater Good here in a little bit, but he's giving a speech to children, and I, and I copied it down word for word what exactly he says, because this character he plays is a absolute true believer in the, in the letter of the law and the good uh, that can come from it, because it seems to make, gives him a sense of clarity, you know, into, in, a, in a confusing, chaotic world, this, this belief in the law and the divine right of politicians and the ability of politicians to craft good laws it somehow gives this guy the good feels. And this is, this is the quote. He's talking to kids. He's talking to kids and his partner, his childlike-minded partner. Police work is as much about preventing crime as it is about fighting crime. No, that's not, first of all, no, it's not true. They are all about fighting crime because they love crime, because crime is what keeps them employed. If there wasn't crime, their budgets would be cut. So they're absolutely, they love crime. Anyway, moving on. Most importantly, it is about procedural correctness, okay? bureaucracy, but okay, I could see that being somewhat true. I mean, you want to follow things by the book so that the evidence gets handled properly and there's a direct chain and, you know, it's all transparent. I can, I can, I can sort of get behind that. But this final line, and the execution of unquestionable moral authority. As you can imagine, this line stuck in my crop pretty hard. Um, this is exactly what cops operate under. They operate as this, you know, unquestionable moral authority. But it's, it's, it's a very telling line because it's exactly critical to them keeping up the religious aspects of their job, keeping up this idea that when you put on a blue costume, you are somehow have the divine right to violently assault people. And it's kind of telling that he uh, ex understands that. That this uh, moral authority that they just claim they don't actually have because they're just human beings and they have to happen into the same moral rules as everybody else. That if they go and attack somebody, it's the same as anybody else going and attacking somebody. But they have this law that says they're allowed to do it. This, this little piece of paper that was scribbled on by some politicians. And uh, 
Yeah, it's just this big religious cult that believes this all to be true. Any thoughts on that, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, Yarp, Yarp. I've got lots of thoughts. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so the first point I wanted to make is that uh, the letter of the law, well, that's actually your second point, but the laws themselves, he says that they're, they're important to have, right? Well, what about the contradictory uh, ones? Well, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And that's what I, I wanted to, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, how do you follow the direct letter of the law when yeah, they contradict or they go against your own moral code? It's a good question. And it seems like he is not a character who has ever questioned that. Right, or or compare a couple of laws next to each other and be like, well, wait a minute. If I do this, I'm breaking this one, but if I do that, I'm breaking the other one. Anyway, right. uh, the second point, the procedural and evidential, you know, trail and all that. I agree that that's important to a point, but once they codify it, codify it, and put it into a bureaucratic process, it becomes just um, almost for show or almost routine, and it loses sense of meaning, if you follow what I'm saying. Like, they sort of go through this rote process and then sort of forget the purpose behind it, and a lot of it's just ticking off boxes or, you know, putting stuff into plastic bags and things like that. And so then it's sort of taken for granted that when the evidence is presented that, of course, it's been handled properly, or whenever the, you know, police... Um, testify or, or the informants testify that, of course, uh, it's going to be true, right? Because, well, mm-hmm. they followed this procedure, this by the book, and it gives this false sense of authority to it. And, and authority, I, I mean, in um, people's believing it to be accurate. Uh, right. It's similar with statistics, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, you can just kind of just change what you call something and then goose the statistics however you'd like, uh, especially if you have a preconceived result that you're seeking. And I think that uh, happens a lot with um, the police and um, in the filing of charges, you know, they'll often overcharge. They'll throw as many things on there as they can, uh, hopefully hoping that you won't fight it in court or you won't uh, try to get a jury trial and you'll cop a plea to like lesser charges. We've talked about that a little bit in the Find Me Guilty episode and on and on. And then the third point was um, the thing that stuck in your craw. Yeah, just because some ceremony has been performed and they wear a costume and and all of these things, yeah, they're still just people, right? And as we talked about earlier, people who have bad intentions, not all of them, but it's easier for them to get into a position to achieve their ends when there's positions like this. And so you're going to have a higher probability of people who wish to cause harm. You know, the the gung-ho, kick-ass types, you know, they want to go into the military or be police, um, and the ones who don't make it as police end up being prison guards or school security guards or whatever. And I, it sounds like I'm shitting on people here, um, but I'm just saying that there's a tendency towards these things when these processes and when these structures are in place. Right. And I was just listening to uh, part of the problem today, the most recent episode with Mance Raider, and uh, Mance really came up with a really good point where, you know, how much they can't even, they can't even argue, you know, that these bad actors, like a, a bad cop, like how much, how much should a bad go- cop get paid? You can't even, can't even answer that question. Whereas if we had actual market, then if there was a bad cop, then perhaps he wouldn't get paid or nearly as much. And there, you know, that would incentivize people properly. Like, oh, if I act this way, then I'll get more money. Whereas if I do a good job or a bad job, I'll make the same. In a socialized system, that's what you get. Whereas under a meritocracy, which is in the private sector, you get paid according to your worth and your value and if you respond to your incentive. So 
Yeah, socialized uh, police force, socialized military, socialized anything leads to leads to bad badness. Bad. The greater bad. <laughs> the greater bad. All right. What, what's your next note, sir? And then we should uh, probably get into our summary and review. Okay. So the next note is just you know when they uh, they rob the one guy of all the guns and weapons he has. And I understand why they did it for the plot point. There got to be, it had to be a scene where he gets these weapons that he's going to use at the very end of the movie. But yeah, the, just the, the fact that he's got a license for one, this, this like hunting kind of shotgun kind of a gun, but then he's got all these other guns that they're just like, wow, these aren't allowed to have under our authoritarian dictate. So we're just going to rob them from you. Even though you haven't hurt anybody, you haven't hurt anybody at all. There's been no crime with any of these weapons he's just like a collector he just has a basement full of them there have been people over in our side of the pond in fact near us that have been arrested and had all their weapons confiscated just because it follows under some arbitrary classification of say like an arsenal they love that word anytime you got like more than two guns it's an arsenal and that's just like an excuse for them to rob you this guy had like dozens of guns but still i posit that at most this guy could use only one or maybe two of them at any given time. And furthermore, that old man was no threat to anybody. What's he going to do? <laughs> what justification, other than some scribble written down by some politician, did this authoritarian cop, Angle, have to rob this guy of all these weapons, Daniel? Yarp. I'm glad you called him Angle because that's one of the funny uh, typos in, in the newspapers, newspaper editor's stories. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. And then what's what's interesting is that the contrast to the firearms being there and that being a problem, yet the murders being committed by the townspeople, including the head police officer. Um, yes, it ends up that that is, um, you know, of course, evil and wrong, and that's kind of the crux of the movie, but they're perfectly okay with doing those things for the greater good throughout the film. Right. Now, the movie is saying that they're wrong. It's true. And I think the movie does a good job of showing that this greater good mentality is a nightmare. That this idea of collectivism, where the the needs of the greater outweigh the needs of the few, means that the if you're outvoted, essentially your rights don't exist. And if it behooves more than one other person, then they can just go ahead and kill you. And in the in the movie, it's 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 trivialized sort of because it's kind of made ridiculous in that they're doing it for a ridiculous reason to get this rating of greatest town. But this happens in real life all the time. And I understand this is a comedy and they're not trying to make a serious point. But they do essentially say that collectivism is a nightmare. And they're right. Collectivism, like in Mao's China, like, well, anywhere on the planet actually currently today, all kinds of things are socialized. And the, the rights of the individual, the most oppressed minority, are constantly being eroded. And when you have this mentality of for the greater good, you can quickly find yourself on the the shit end of the stick, should I put it, with no recourse. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking of the greater good and, and Bentham, I think we mentioned his name earlier. Uh, I have a Rothbard quote about Jeremy Bentham, and he says, Bentham's famous phrase, the greatest good for the greatest number, which is the cornerstone of his doctrine. One of the problems with that, of course, one of the many problems is suppose you're in the lesser number, then what? What happens then? Utilitarianism can justify almost everything. Yep. Yeah, and if you are an advocate for this sort of thing, it's only a matter of time before it gets used against you. Because, I mean, as the movie shows, and of course, like I said, it's ridiculous, 
but they'll come up, they'll kill anybody for any reason. And that actually happened in Soviet Union under Stalin and Mao. They just they just killed people just to just to kill people. So for any imagined infraction, they'll just they'll just murder you. Um, like I said in the, the recent Boys Not Out episode, there was a uh, under the uh, ISIS or ISIL under the Islamic State. They'll kill you for the the idea that maybe you trimmed your beard, or at least fine you or attack you and assault you for it. Uh, this is the idea. This is the mindset of the collectivist mind that. They are the arbiters of what is good and just, and that you are the other, and you must be punished, and they are moral and right and just in punishing you, because they have this philosophical belief, it's actually a religious belief, that that because they are, what, in the majority, that therefore they have the right? I'm not exactly sure where it stems from. Where would you say it stems from, Daniel? You have any idea? You know, there's a lot of different uh, possible answers, but I think it's absolving yourself of individual responsibility is a key, key one. Like people want to have that paternalism, you know, they don't want to be responsible for something. And it's a lot easier to just tick a box and then get told that it's being taken care of uh, because the cost to you is very minimal in that in that regard. Yeah. So it incentivizes it. It, it lowers the barrier and it makes it easy. And Socializes it, the cost, yeah. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of um, another series of quotes here. This is Hans Hermann Hoppe. If you haven't heard of him, he's, uh, he's excellent. But here's the quote. Democracy has nothing to do with freedom. Democracy is a soft variant of communism, and rarely in the history of ideas has it been taken for anything else. What is true, just, and beautiful is not determined by popular vote. The masses everywhere are ignorant, short-sighted, motivated by envy, and easy to fool. Democratic politicians must appeal to these masses in order to be elected. Whoever is the best demagogue will win. And almost by necessity, then, democracy will lead to the perversion of truth, justice, and beauty. What a great quote. Fantastic. I can't really find anything wrong with it. So good. That was perfect. Reminds me of uh, James Carville saying that to um, Will Ferrell in Old School. <laughs> I don't remember that scene. Uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to do Old School at some point. Yarp. Yarp. Narp. <laughs> Narp? <laughs> the movie's funny, man. There are funny bits. There are funny bits, and I, I kind of like when the that... when the priest gets shot and he goes, "Jesus Christ!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And apparently, all of those guys, um, all of the uh, actors, the townspeople, were famous British actors, like character actors who've been around for twenty, thirty years, and UK audiences would know who they are. Uh, and they they almost that. they almost reference it when they were talking about. Um, the Romeo and Juliet play being so terrible and the two of the townspeople were in, you know, they were extras in these real films or something like that. Yeah, they probably really were, those actors, I would assume. Yeah. Maybe that was just a reference for that. I think think you're right and I don't recognize who any of them were other than I knew who Stephen Merchant was and who um, Martin Freeman. Right. And Dalton. And Timothy Dalton, of course, James Bond. Um, But everyone else I, I didn't recognize and I didn't know it was Kate Blanchett until I read it. And I didn't know it was Peter Jackson until I read it. Yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, the, yeah, the, that's actually absolutely who they are. But yeah, just looking at them on the screen for the brief moments that they're in there, it's not super recognizable. But overall, I thought the cast was great. A lot of fun. Yeah. Now, is the third one in the Cornetto trilogy worth seeing? Have you seen it? I enjoyed it. it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I saw it in the theater when it came out, you know, 2012 or 
whenever it did. At World's End, uh, they go on a pub run. There are some boys that coming back for their high school reunion, and they, you know, they go on a pub run to celebrate. And it gets, it takes a weird turn. <laughs> I mean, it's all about like, should I, should I spoil it? I don't know. No, I, I'm not going to spoil it. It's they go on a pub run. All right. So well, maybe, maybe you, we can do the Cornetto. Let's do the whole Cornetto. And okay. Let's, let's um, do Shaun of the Dead for Halloween. Sure. So we'll, we'll milk this quite a bit. And then the okay. uh, at World's End, is there like maybe a New Year's? Would that be appropriate? So a few months after Halloween? Mm, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of timeless. Other than, you know, high school reunions are usually in the summer. summertime. So maybe in the summertime. But, before before Halloween or after? So like a year, a year later, we're still doing this. Well, we're doing them way out of order anyway, so might as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we're doing number two now. Or we just did number two. Phrasing. All right, fine. Let's do uh, At World's End in the summer sometime, and then we'll do the uh, Halloween Shaun of the Dead. All right, you, are you writing this down? <laughs> you crazy? All right, <laughs> well. writing it down. Writing, writing, writing. You know, I, I should have a calendar that we can publish and put stuff out. Sean. Yeah, except then you wouldn't wouldn't be able to respond spontaneously unless you put in a bunch of to be determined. Yeah, a lot of flexibility. Yeah. Oh, you know what did we decide for our next episode? By the way, Nacho. Yeah, rewatch it. You've been saying Nacho over and over again, so let's just get it out of the way. All right, we'll knock that one out. It's very good, but we'll see. It'll be our Cinco de Appropriation episode. Sweet. Anyway, let's uh, do any of your final notes and then final summary and review, sir. Uh, the last note I had was um, that mine explosion. That would have that killed everybody. The fact that anybody survived that was was pretty bad. I'm not exactly sure why they needed to do that other than to completely complete the circle. Um, just the blast wave alone would have killed everybody in that, in that building. Yeah, but I think whatever. that was another homage to other films where the heroes are bulletproof and or, you know, can only sustain injuries and not die, not be killed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad boys, too. And there's a bunch of uh, camera, Michael Bay camera swirls during the last uh, shootout, which were really fun. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of, you know, these action movies that this movie is, you know, kind of playing off of, I think you'd really enjoy this movie. Um, I think this movie is, is probably one of the best of this genre ever made. I think um, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, especially the Edgar Wright, I'm a big fan of. Not so much the Simon Pegg, but he, he's still good. Um, I cannot part. forgive him for Star Trek Beyond, though. That 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 actually came to mind when I said, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> um, but yeah, this movie, uh, I, I just had a lot of fun with it. Um, I can't decide whether it's pro-authoritarian aggression or against it. I think in the very beginning, it's kind of setting it up as that. Um, I'm not sure, really, if the uh, the main character really learns anything. I think at the very end, he's still just as much of a gung-ho authoritarian as he is at the beginning, other than the, the only thing he learns really is that he, he kind of likes the small town and that something's always going on, but he already knew that in the beginning. So, yeah, it's not a perfect movie in that sense, but I think it's a really great homage to the movies that it was aping. Um, and I, I love the circular storytelling. It's fantastic. Um, and I thought, I think it's just a funny movie. Uh, it, it hits me in my funny bone. It's made by some people that are about my age. So, you know, that probably has something to do with it. Um, but overall, this movie is really strong. Um, I'm glad it spurred some good discussion. Um, but I'm going to give this a 8.8. This is super strong. High recommendation for me. Daniel? 
Yarp, that's high. Yeah, that's that is. Uh, are you high? Um, so my summary review is that yes, it's a fun movie, and there's a lot of homages and callbacks and the circular storytelling that you were talking about, and there's also a lot of reference to Shaun of the Dead and the just outsized gore. Like they try to make everything like over the top in those respects, and so like the decapitations and the church spire falling on the guy's head, like they're really nasty. And like the final um, fight is full of you know these action sequences that are lifted almost frame <laughs> frame for frame from other other films. Um, and then uh, Timothy Dalton's character, he gets his head caught on the uh, spire, and you think that he's dead, but then he starts talking. <laughs> it's like really fucked up. Um, so there's a lot of like visual things going on in this and there's a lot of action. I felt it was a bit disjointed, like I was saying earlier. And so for that, it's, it's not as much fun for me to watch. And then there's a lot of like holes in the story and I get it. It's, it's supposed to be funny. And so you're not really supposed to pay attention to the story or whether it makes sense within its own self and follows its own logic. But I feel like it falls down a little bit there. I do like the camaraderie between Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I think they do play well to each other. And I think that's just because they've you know worked together for so long and have an established relationship. Um, and they are genuinely funny guys. So overall, I, I, like I said, mixed bag for me. Um, it is fun in parts and it does yield a lot of interesting points and good discussion. So I do appreciate that, but I'm not nearly as high as your 8.8. I'm probably more like a five and a half for me. So oh. yeah, a little bit of a, uh, of a spread here, but <laughs> you might be in trouble for shooting all over the movie. Well, I'm trying not to, I'm, I'm trying to spread the shit lightly, you know, make a thin <laughs> veneer, like a light dusting, a okay. light dusting. <laughs> a shit dusting. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, that reminds me of uh, the trailer park boys and Jim Leahy. He's hilarious. I'll take your word for it. Uh, anyway, um, any other reaction to, to my uh, appallingly low score from you before we say goodnight from The Last Nighters? Well, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Um, usually, if this movie, you know, we recently did Super Troopers, like you said, and, you know, the uh, celebration of authoritarian aggression in that movie really rankled us. Um, and it might, should have also done it in this movie, but I think this movie is such a much better movie, just in terms of story and acting and plot and just everything um, coming together. So I'm surprised by your low score. Um, even though this features people in blue costumes, I still think it's a great, great film. Um, and uh, I would have appreciated it better if it wasn't didn't feature people in blue costumes, but I understand why they did it, and it was the story they wanted to tell at the time. So, um, yeah, good stuff, man. And I'll, I'll take your uh, 5.5 and just say... Say uh, just say you're wrong, but that's all right. You can you're entitled to your wrong opinion. All right. Well, I appreciate you liking my my uh, or defending my right to be wrong and just right. stand here in my wrongness. So thank you. All right. Well, I think yes, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's it is difficult because it's like all right. So if the message is that Simon Pegg, who's super cop, is virtuous, then that's a problem for me. But then they uh-huh. show everyone else inept, bureaucratized politicized and unionized, um, therefore really shitty at what they do. And it's almost like an indictment of the entire structure, the entire system. Um, but then it, you know, has that contrasting character uh, that's almost like this is what it should be, mm-hmm. but then this is what it is. So in a way, it's sort of giving you this mixed message of this is their ideal, this is the reality, and we don't know how to get it to be any different. Um, but I would argue their ideal really isn't that good anyway. Right. I mean, if they're under, operating under market forces, I mean, if that was the answer at the end of the movie, I'd be like, woo, what a great movie. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be blown away. I'd be like, holy shit, you know. Um, but apparently, Peg, his um, college dissertation was um, Marxian analysis of 70s film, something like that. Yeah, I've heard he's a bit of a socialist, or maybe not even a bit. I don't know, but um, I know he's a big time uh, Me Too pro feminist. He sure he for me, she for me, she man. <laughs> he she. He for yeah. she is that what it is? She for he? He for she? He for she? But can you really can you blame him? I mean, he he lives in that culture where all the I mean, that's essentially his livelihood is being one of those people. And there's a very few. There are very few people in Hollywood that go against that grain. Oh, well, you want to be able to work? Like, like James Woods. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they want to be able to work. So you got to kind of go along and get along in that fucking terrible shit show. I mean, there's Vince Vaughn. Other way, you could work for Vince Vaughn, maybe Clint Eastwood, or the other name I just said. James Woods. Yeah, James Woods. Or Chuck Woolery. He's he's a bit of a conservative type. Does he? Yeah, but he's not hiring people. Uh, John Voight. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure Vince Vaughn's the only one that has any kind of a production studio development house. Yeah, you know, and he's been doing and these ter- terrible movies lately. Eastwood has one. It's unfortunate. So I hear Brawl in Cell Block 49 or whatever is actually good in a way. Yeah, I haven't even heard of this. It's one of his more recent films. It just came out last year, and people uh, say that it has this real 70s visceral style to it, and if you're a fan of that kind of a thing, this is a great homage to it. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a fun film to, to watch. So I, I have an interest in watching it, but not an interest in paying to watch it. So I'm not going to like put it in the video or anything like that. I think that's going to do it for us from the Last Nighters. So uh, do check us out, lastnighters.com. This is episode 17, lastnighters.com slash 17. We also have a YouTube channel, and you can link to it um, from our website. And if you wouldn't mind, we could really use some more subscribes. Uh, I think we're at uh, just about 70 now, and we need 30 more to get that custom, that juicy custom URL. So uh, if you guys could help us out with that, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and then eventually that'll yield us the youtube.com slash lastnighters. We can't get that yet because you can't get the custom URL until you reach 100. So if you could help us out there, tell your friends, send it to your mom. I don't even know. Uh, just get us there somehow, some way. So we appreciate it. And thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Lastnighters.com. Lastnighters out. Peace out.